Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and I'm joined in studio today, as I usually am, by President Wyatt. Scott, how are you? Terrific. Thanks, Steve. Both of us are uh, wheezing and rasping, uh, <laughs> you with allergies and me with bronchitis, but uh, we shall do our best to get through this. <laughs> That's right. This is part of uh, this is part of our continuing series um, on the issues related to enrollment in higher education, and uh, in particular, I think uh, about the uh, looming changes that are coming to higher education, generally decreasing uh, enrollment, at least for some institutions, and. We are having a series of guests join us, and as we do today, have a a guest joining us. And why don't you take a few minutes and introduce John? Yeah, we are delighted to be joined um, by Vice President John Bockenstead, calling in from your office at Oregon State University. Welcome, John. Hi, it's great to be here. So how's it like in uh, Oregon today? Well, I just tweeted out about... 10 minutes ago that this is my 193rd day living in Oregon and is the first day I've felt compelled to use an umbrella. So wow. maybe, we bust, yeah, maybe we can bust a few myths along the way while we talk this afternoon. Yeah, that's impressive. I have a son that uh, got a degree at a university down the street from yours. Oh, we won't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> is their mascot is their mascot better suited for rainy days? That's right. It's better suited for rainy days, but yeah. All right. good. Yeah. But nevertheless. Well, welcome and um we're delighted to have you join us to visit this afternoon. Um let's start out by having you give us just a little bit of your background and how you got to where you are. You're the vice president of enrollment sure. management at Oregon State University, right? technically vice provost, but it's sort of the same thing. Yeah, I report to the provost here, as does a lot of, as do a lot of functions uh, sort of in um, academic administration here at the university. I've been um, in enrollment management for about 35 years now, uh, through admissions, financial aid, um, did some consulting and other sorts of things. I, uh, I sort of fell into admissions by accident. I came into the uh, profession in the middle of an academic year when I think competition wasn't so great. And I was always sort of the last person that anybody would ever think would be a good admissions officer. Because um, if you know Myers-Briggs on that scale, I'm overwhelmingly introverted. But um, (laughs) as as Paul Tuff said in his book, um, I got lucky because the, uh, the profession changed around me. And it suddenly became a profession where people with analytics and um, uh, an orientation to think about data um, became more important. And the people who go out and do the college fairs and host visits on campus um, are still important, but not the the sole sort of source of 
human resources within the, the profession. And so um, I've worked at five different uh, colleges and universities and have been at Oregon State since, um, since July 1st and um, have found living in the West extraordinarily uh, wonderful and beautiful and um, really uh, have enjoyed my six months here so far. Well, you're, um, you're spot on. It, in, in fact, it seems like not only that the West is beautiful, but the, we didn't even have vice presidents or vice provosts of enrollment management um, a couple decades ago. Right. And in fact, if you look at institutions like Harvard or Princeton or Berkeley or other institutions that have really strong market positions, there is no such position at, that, at those universities. Um, and, you know, in some sense, I think at a lot of public universities, it's been the same thing where um, for the longest time, people have assumed that enrollment was simply something that happened to you rather than something you affect. And private universities who are largely tuition dependent to a much greater extent and certainly don't have that government largesse and, and support coming in um, have felt for a long time that it was important to be able to be strategic and to manage and to think about the trade-offs and to try to um, affect the outcomes that you want via, you know, important leveraging and strategy decisions. And so... Um, it's becoming more popular at public universities, and, and my position is new here. So, you know, QED, we just, uh, we just came full circle and uh, uh, proved the point there. Yeah, it's become a very serious thinking, analytical business, the enrollment management, where, as you described, well, it used to just be happy people showing up at high schools. Right, right. I don't know. I don't know how dependent Southern, U Southern Utah is on tuition revenue for your ENG budget, but here at Oregon State, you know, we have a really high reliance on tuition, and so small changes in student enrollment profiles or um, numbers can make a big difference in our budget every year. And uh, like most states, I suspect we don't see a future where things are going to get appreciably better. Uh, they make it incrementally better in some areas. But the days of the 1970s and 80s where the state was, was thrilled to fund um, public education is, is I think, are, are long gone, unfortunately. We're fortunate in Utah that um, the legislature gives us about half of our budget. Oh, you're very lucky, yeah. So that's still 50% of our budget, and it makes a big difference. But I feel for those institutions that are dependent on tuition for 60, 70, 80, 90% of their revenue. Yeah, the, the university I came from, I was, at, I was at the Paul University in Chicago for 17 years prior to coming out here. And um, depending on how you ran the numbers and you know what you looked at and what you counted, DePaul was between 88 and 92% tuition reliant. And so that's one of the reasons that our enrollment management division there was so sophisticated and um, had such a long tenure, precisely because the university had to uh, be smart about enrollment in order to survive. You've been in this business now for, what, 35 years? Uh, uh, 30, yeah, we just changed the year, didn't we? So maybe 36. 36 yeah, years? Um, yep, and so um, it's been great, and I've loved every single minute of it. I, uh, I am a 
I grew up in Iowa and neither of my parents even went to high school, let alone, or yeah, went to high school, let alone even college. And so, um, you know, I was only, I only am where I am today because the state of Iowa was really strong in funding and supporting public and private higher education within the state. And I think about that all the time. I think about where I'd be and, you know, where my children would be and what I'd be doing if, in fact, I didn't have the resources available to me to to go to college for four years. Um, I remember filling out the financial aid form and being sort of stunned in 1982 or three, 81, maybe my last, my senior year of college, that um, my father's income was $17,000. And yet I could afford to go to college and the state of Iowa made that happen. And I'm, I'm still extremely grateful for that and, and wish that we were, you know, experiencing a similar situation for our students today. You've, um, you've, you've written um, recently about this, the fact that throughout your entire career, there's been a constant hum warning some pending economic challenge regarding enrollments for higher education. But, yep. that, but that that hum was never really taken seriously because things well, just I, always I, seemed I, to be okay. Well, I don't know that they were okay, but I, I think we were able to adapt to incremental change over a long period of time. And so, you know, there were a variety of ways you could do it. You weren't seeing big sort of catastrophic changes in funding or enrollment from one year to the next. Um, and, and colleges, for instance, would diversify their enrollment portfolios. So, for instance, when undergraduate education started um, peaking, colleges said, well, you know, there's this huge market of college graduates who want to get ahead and we can start offering master's degrees. Or if traditional enrollment started peaking or, you know, high school graduates were declining for a period as they, you know, it's just an ebb and flow of of population booms and busts, Um, we can talk about non-traditional students and returning students. And and we can can bolster our enrollment by thinking about part-time students or someone who, who isn't 17 coming back to college. But then the, the 2007, 2008, economic bust hit, and that really changed everything. At, at the Paul where I was working, we had about, you know, we were a private university, and we had about 40% of our freshmen not receive any institutional aid. And within about four years, that had dropped to 7%. And so, so um, 93% of, that, of your students were receiving aid at that point. Is that what you're saying? No, in, in two, and so in 2006, only 60% of our students were receiving any institutional aid I see. at all. Okay. And, and by the time 2013 or 2014 came around, we were looking at something like 93% of our students right. receiving aid. Right, so you were having so, to purchase students <laughs> that, that were, had been well, full we, payers in the past. We were, yeah, we were having to support them. And, and one of the things that happened was, a lot of those students who weren't receiving aid, their parents were simply borrowing against home equity. And in 2008, a lot of people saw that they didn't have any home equity left to borrow against. Right. And so we understood and we knew that you had to do something pretty draconian. And, um, you know, we, we started offering a, or approaching the market differently. 
and saying, yes, we know you. You may look on paper like you have some some capacity to pay, but our analysis and our research suggests that if we don't offer you something, you're not going to enroll here. So we'd rather have 60% of tuition than 100% of nothing. And it was a pretty easy proposition to sell and to make for people. Yeah, and, and your experience there is not uh, unique. That's the way what we read that's, we that's read right. that all the institutions, most of them are increasing what we would call a discount rate, which is how much aid yep. students are given. Yeah, well, so I, I think Nakubo and other organizations think differently about discount rate. I think about it as unfunded aid uh, as a function of tuition. Because if if you have funded aid, that's really invisible to you. You don't care if that comes in from a check the student rights or it comes in from a scholarship in the foundation. It comes in as cash. And so it's really not a discount. But a lot of the unfunded or waiver aid that institutions mm-hmm. offer is is where it comes right out of the operating budget. And that means you have less money available to heat the buildings and pay the faculty and, you know, put helmets on the football team. Uh, and all those things that you want to do as a university, become, become, it becomes a harder equation to balance. It's kind of like putting, putting it on sale. Yeah. Exactly. Re- reducing the cost. Um, this, this is, which, is, which is a positive good. It's wonderful for students who can then, as you described, who may have been coming to college based on their parents borrowing money against their house mortgage who now can't yeah. do it after 2008. And um, this is providing a way for them to come. So this is a wonderful yep. thing for society, but it's very challenging for institutions. And for many of those institutions, it's threatening their viability. And people people up until 2007 were willing to make that investment because the, the perspective going out was that it was still a good investment. That, you know, it might cost more than it used to, but the starting salaries for graduates are good, and um, you'll make it back over the lifetime of your degree. And, um, you know, it, there was there were two things wrong with that. First of all, past performance is no indica- indication of future performance. Um, so, you know, there's that, and you, you never really know for sure um, whether something's going to be worthwhile going forward. But the second thing is people weren't, as willing to question whether that sticker price was rational in the first place. And if you go back and look at the increase in student costs and tuition over time, it really started about 1981. So I, I have a chart somewhere in my portfolio that tracks things back to 1964. And from 64 to 81, the increase in college costs and CPI were almost dead on. It, it's remarkable how similar they were. They just tracked each other perfectly. Colleges were raising tuition at about the cost of the rate of inflation. And something happened in 81, and I don't know what that was, that caused those two to split. And the cost of private higher education from that time forward just went haywire. And so, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to say we shouldn't discount this much, but no one ever really asked should we be charging this much to start with, that we have to discount. And I think that's one of the key and important parts of the equation that, that people don't think about enough. Here's a great line that you wrote. Um, 
The ecosystem of American higher education today is like an aging baby, baby boomer who has never exercised. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I think that's a creative yeah. way of just tell us what you mean by that. Well, it's a little autobiographical, actually. <laughs> for, for me, too. It hits a little close to the bone for me. Yeah. Um, you know, as my as my joints ache and I get winded walking up four flights of stairs, I say, oh, I'm, you know, maybe I should have paid a little more attention to this going forward. Well, but we're three it, we're three baby boomers, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, think it, um, I think it's true in the sense that, you know, between – age 25 and 26, you probably go downhill a little bit, but you don't notice it because it's something you can manage. And I think uh, Peter Senjay and the boiling frog metaphor, whether it's reflective of reality or not, is a good one. He always said, if you put a frog in a pot of really hot water, it will jump out immediately. But if you put the frog in cold water and gradually turn up the heat, the frog won't notice it. Um, And I think that's our sort of um, situation here. Things have finally gotten to the point where, um, you know, you see some stress and some pressure and some cracks in the system all around you, but you really don't have any idea, um, you know, what's going to go first or what's going to go last or how long you're going to be able to survive. And of course, the big thing is we don't know what catastrophic things are out in the environment that are going to affect us in ways that we can't even imagine. So for instance, um, you know, some people think we're on the verge of another war in the Middle East. How is that going to affect things? What's that going to do to us? What does that do to 17 and 18-year-olds and their orientation toward education? Um, other people point to the longest economic expansion in recent history and say we're overdue for a market crash and what's going to happen when that happens, you know. Um, so, so we can kind of get by from year to year if everything external stays the same. But when those big things happen outside the university in society or politics or government or economics or just public perception, um, we're not always well equipped to handle that that dramatic punctuated equilibrium. There's a there's a website that's been tracking um, institute. There's several of these that tracks institutions that go out of business, colleges and universities. Yeah. And. um um, one that uh, we're aware of is something like a hundred in the last few years. That includes going out of just closing their doors, but also it includes schools that merge in order to find a way to be viable. Yeah, is that the College Garden? I think it's called. Or yeah, there's I one called the College History Garden. College History Garden. That's what it is. Right. Yeah, I, I, I know of the person who does that and does really really good work. Um, it's interesting to to see and to take a look at. Um, and the interesting thing is, all through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the average number of college closings was about six or seven per year. So if, you know, we stay on that track, which is not unreasonable to expect because of a lot of economic and demographic forces, um, is, is 15 in a year really... That much of an outlier, you know, I would say maybe it isn't, but if it doubles, you know, to 30 and it goes on for a few years, you're talking about some real major impact, not just on the students, but the faculty and the staff and the cities and the towns where those colleges are located. Uh, And on the other hand, you know, I downloaded the entire iPad data set 
and took a look and figured out that if if you took the smallest 583 colleges in the country and closed all of them at once, the net effect on overall college enrollment would be about three quarters of 1%. Well, that kind of amplifies, doesn't it, what happens when some of these schools go really big, like Western yeah. Governors and Southern New Hampshire yep. and Grand Canyon yep. and Arizona State, yeah. because their growth well, in one year could consume that many colleges enrollments. Easily. Yeah. And in fact, people always, you know, you listen or read the New York Times or listen to NPR and you're sort of persuaded that the whole world of higher education um, is in New England. And it consists of Isn't that Harvard, the truth? <laughs> the, or maybe a little outside of New England, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, right? Um, those institutions, and I'll right. throw Stanford and Duke on the pile. Um, they may have really, actually met always, someone at the University of Chicago once, but other than that, yes, exactly. nothing else. And, and you know, um, um, it's always been the case that about seventy percent of college students in the U.S go to a public institution. And in fact, the more interesting statistic is that one out of every nine college students in the nation attends a community college in California. Wow. One out of nine. One out, yeah, uh, about 11%. Wow. Of all students. Or I'm sorry, one out of 11, 9%. I had that back yeah. and I had that reversed. Yeah. Uh, we knew exactly what you meant. <laughs> that, Good. That's an amazing and, stat. And part of that reason is is because of the cost structure, the tuition costs for community colleges in California, and then, of course, how many people live in California. Yeah, and, you know, what's really interesting to me is the sense that I've always had that um, in California, going there's not a stigma go, of going to a community college like there might be in some other places in the country especially given the receptivity of places like private institutions like USC or big public institutions like Berkeley or UCLA and their willingness to work with and accept transfer students, you know, and, and to make that transition as smooth as possible. They're really, they're really a model for how we can and should do things. Um, because I think if you look at the difference between a student who comes in and a student who exits, I think community colleges do the best job in the country of moving that needle on those students farther than any other institution, any other type of institution. Um, it's often been said if you took the freshman class at Harvard and locked them in a closet for four years, they'd come out better educated just because of the people they are. And that's not the same. That's not true with community college students. I think those, those institutions do a magnificent job and don't get nearly enough credit for all the heavy lifting they do. Yeah, we've we've talked about this quite a bit, Steve, haven't we? The, yes. The um, rankings for institutions and accreditation ought to be based on how much gains the students make during their time, rather than how the students appear as they leave. Yep. Because, because at some of these schools, they're recruiting students that are already successful or obviously going to be successful, and it doesn't take very much work to get them out the door. But some yeah, schools are you know, really working hard. I, I spent exactly. the first uh, 27 years of my career in the two-year school. I'm, I'm really happy to hear you say that, John. I, I agree wholeheartedly. 
Uh, in fact, Scott and I met uh, when he became the college president uh, at a two-year college that we both worked at. And uh, um, we we both agree with you that it's it's the distance traveled that's what's important. Yeah. And uh, and that two-year schools do a great job with that. Well, I just I, just this morning, I, I tweeted out a visualization that I had done a long time ago, um, maybe three years ago. Um, I downloaded all the incoming test scores of students at all the New York City public high schools and then plotted them, uh, plotted them against their mean SAT average three and a half years later. And it is as perfect a line as you can possibly imagine. And so, you know, it's a matter of what you bring in is what you put out. And it's it was really astonishing to see the the you know if a sociologist got a correlation of 0.93 or whatever it was <laughs> they just wouldn't believe it yeah, and and right. it was it was so stunningly linear that in fact those quote unquote best high schools really aren't moving their students any more than the schools sort of considered to be the bottom of the the ladder and it it can be a shocking sort of revelation for people but but people still don't want to believe it yeah it's um I, it's it's interesting, and I think that's one of the uh, one of the uh, types of institutions that we're seeing that are in trouble right now are the high paid, the high cost private universities and colleges who are very highly dependent on tuition. Oh, sure. You take yeah. a school like you know, Harvard; I, I, they're not that dependent because they have a huge endowment. But the the privates that are very dependent on tuition that are expensive, they're yeah, I, you know, I think there was a Gallup poll just out a few weeks ago that talked about the public's, the American public's confidence in yep. higher education and how important it was or or, or is or isn't. And uh, the number who said it was very important has fallen from 70% to 50% in yep. just three or four years. Um, so I think, I think people are becoming less willing to... Um, put forth and put out that much effort and that many resources for the education that they believe, I think, is largely a commodity anymore, with some exceptions at the very top end of the, of the spectrum. Yeah. Well, John, let's, let, let's, uh, so it's the new year. We're just shortly after the new year anyway. That's right. And um, if we are in higher education in America, a baby boomer who has never exercised, what should be yeah. our New Year resolutions? Yeah, and and can well, I can I follow up with that because my favorite paragraph in what you wrote is colleges have been reluctant to change. I'm quoting you now, or to be boldly distinctive for one simple reason: in our industry, innovation is dangerous. If you take a risk yep. and it's successful, then everybody steals it. I'm now paraphrasing you. And if you fail, the cost and consequence fall squarely on you. So, given that and what President <laughs> Wyatt said about New Year's resolutions, that what what do you think is our pathway forward? Well, I think um, I think in higher education, everything has to start with your mission, and um, there are some artificial measures of and externalities that people at colleges and universities get hung up on. Um, but I think I see a real sense and a desire for authenticity among people in America. And so there are probably 
you know, maybe it, we, we probably can't act together in collusion because the Justice Department has already indicated they don't like that sort of thing. But I think if one or two institutions sort of sets forth on an agenda that is um, damn the torpedoes full steam ahead with, you know, our mission, um, others will follow suit. And so, for instance, I would say one of the things um, we need to think about and talk about is giving students a net price before they even apply for admission. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the system where students have to apply for admission and wait three weeks, six months to get admitted and then have to wait again to see if they can afford it um, just doesn't strike me as something we would ever invent if we were doing this from the very, from the ground up. Um, I've often also talked about a clearinghouse for all college applications. John, hold, hold on that. a oh, sure. Let me step sure. back to that. Um, what do you mean specifically by saying that we, disc that we tell them what the net tuition price is? Um, so, for instance, um, I just bought a car. And um, before I did that, I was talking to three or four dealers online and they were saying, this is your out-the-door price. I never had to set foot on the dealership floor until I had a place that I was reasonably comfortable about the price, the service, the quality, the make, the model, everything that was available to me. But students don't have that luxury. It's almost like you have to, um, you have to go through this convoluted process in order to find out what it's going to cost you. Um, so if you're a low-income student and you might be thinking about Princeton, right? Um, you you have no idea what it's going to cost until you actually get through the sorting process of the admissions committee, and then go through the financial aid process, and then make several phone calls, and then go through verification. It would be really nice if a student could say, um, "Princeton, I'm interested in you. If I get admitted, what is it going to cost me?" and have that be a contract with the student, as opposed to a, a rough estimate. So in this... that way. Oh, go no, ahead, please. Go ahead. No, go ahead. So, would I mean, if I'm a student applying to go to a school, any school, and it might be uh, Oregon State, would when I apply, would I already know what need aid and what scholarships I would qualify for? Would all that information be up front? I guess that's really kind of the question. I would think that would be the ideal system. And I think that would cut way down on the number of applications students have to file because the uncertainty generates some fear. Yep, and the fear right. generates a lot of applications to institutions that students just try to cover their bases. So I, I think that would be, you know, if you can distill it down, you can say a, a more transparent net pricing process. We've got, at Southern Utah University, uh, we publish the scholarship numbers for most of the students. There, there are some unique sure. scholarships that are hard to understand, but, but when most students apply, they know exactly what their scholarship would be. In fact, we, they apply and they're awarded a scholarship virtually on the spot. Sure. But, but that doesn't answer the need-based uh, areas, and those right. are... Right. Um, yeah, you know, I think a system where students don't need to fill out a financial aid form would be optimal. And the first thing that the financial aid retrieval tool does is go into the IRS system and retrieve your tax information. Well, that tax information could 
be fed automatically into a financial aid form or some sort of intent to apply for financial aid. And that calculation could be done automatically for the student. So you could say you have a $5,000 Pell Grant waiting for you at any of these institutions. Or I don't know if there's a Utah State Grant, you know, um, your Utah State Grant will be $3,000 or whatever it happens to be. And the institutions that are out there looking at you are willing to offer you this much in institutional scholarships or work or um, inventive loan programs or whatever the case may be. And, you know, it's almost like um, um, there was a system in the late 1990s called U-College Bid, where students would simply put in the price that they're willing to pay in their academic statistics, and colleges could bid on them as opposed to them bidding yeah. in colleges. And um, <clears throat> it was so far ahead of its time, it was doomed to fail. Oh, that's so yeah. interesting, though. But part of what yeah. you're saying is is that we we need to develop, and it would be a national uh, kind of a system because it's dependent on the IRS and the FAFSA yeah. application for federal financial aid. But that a student yep. could apply for that before they apply for colleges and universities, get a decision, yep. and then take that with them when they go looking for a university. Then they can match that with scholarships that might be available, and they would know exactly what they're going to have to pay. Exactly. Got and, it. and that Got means it. they won't have to apply to nine colleges to try to get a bet, uh, good offer someplace. And so having one arm. Go ahead. They could still do that, of course, uh. but uh, it would cut down on the need for that. Um, I, I think we also, um, you know, I've talked numerous times and written a lot about a clearinghouse for freshman applications and even transfer applications where all the data and all the transactions are managed through a central system. And that way, the data and the information that's in there can be presented to prospective students um, in an attempt to give them better information about who enrolls, how much aid students get. Um, what their chances for admission would be. So if, if you're a, make one up, a Hispanic female from the state of Montana and you want to see what your chances are at Harvard, well, you suddenly have five years of data on Hispanic female applicants with your grade point applying to Harvard or the Ivy League institutions. And when you find out what your chances are, that may, in fact, influence whether or not you apply for admission. And there are some kids who probably have a one-tenth of a 1% chance of getting admitted to some of those places. Um, but they see an admit rate of 5%, and they think their their chances are 50 times better than they actually are. I think students have a right to know early on what their real chances of admission are. Especially some of these schools that charge so much for their admission yeah, application. You're, yeah, you're talking about saving thousands of dollars, probably, in fees. Yeah. Yeah, you know, fortunately, a, a very low-income student can get a waiver, but um, um, it's probably also true that there are a lot of students that pay that, not even knowing that waivers exist. And I think that's, you know, that's also unfortunate. Here's here's sort of one that I think would be really interesting. If you think about who benefits from a well-educated workforce, um, you know, it's corporations, and I'd like to see. I, I said 20 years ago. I'd be thrilled to see the NACAC Coca-Cola National College Fair. <laughs> let uh, let corporations subsidize some of the cost of finding and identifying and recruiting talented students, especially students of color and students who aren't automatically going to go to college, in order to um, make the make 
opportunity greater and make it more expansive and available to students. Um, and so I think I think some sense of public-private partnerships um, in that regard would be a really really helpful thing. Not just the Coca-Cola scholars, but you know Coca-Cola funding national college fairs or funding information sessions or doing something or it could be Google or Microsoft or anybody that really wants a better educated workforce in the coming century. Um, not just for their company, but for their community? Yeah. You know, uh, again, I think the time is, I, I may be naive and, and Pollyannish about this, but I really believe that um, companies benefit from a well-educated, diverse workforce. And it's really incumbent upon them to say it's our turn to chip in and help to make sure that that happens for the future. Well, you're not going to get disagreement from us over that. Yeah, I was going to say. that's true. They are, they, everyone does benefit from yeah. a growing economy and growing qualified workforce. And, John, if you, can right. get, if you can get the IRS to populate a FAFSA form, I'll vote for you for president. That's all i got yeah. to say about yeah. that. I, I think I think it can be done, um, but but uh, you know when you fill out a, a tax form, you put the age and the birth date and the social security number of every dependent. So that information is already there. Seems like a no-brainer. Yep. It does. Yeah. Oh, that's a fascinating idea. What else would you put in our exercise strategy for the new year? I would um, I would ask uh, the iPad data center to stop requesting standardized test scores as a reporting tool or as a reporting point. Um, we know what standardized test scores do. We know what they don't do. Um, and we know that they're really products of two private companies that, whether for better or for worse, are accountable to no one but themselves. Um, and the extent to which a standardized test score predicts anything above and beyond grade point average is really negligible. But those numbers, that, that illusion of precision, like Bob Sternberg referred to, um, gives colleges fear of admitting students with lower test scores, even though they know that test scores don't predict much other than race and wealth. That's right. Um, they're still they're still largely afraid to make that move and to discount those scores in the process. So if they still want to continue using them, that's fine. But take away the penalty that colleges in, uh, experience for admitting students who are really smart and really talented and great students but who have low test scores. Take that penalty away, and then I think you will find students having a better chance, especially if they don't have wealthy college-educated parents who can confer on them the benefits of private or excellent public education and test prep and all the things that go into making a high test score. They're, they're, uh, I, I just look at all my kids and my uh, kids-in-laws. They all seem to have a different mm -hmm. um, capacity to take standardized exams. Yep. And, yeah. and they, yeah. they aren't as diverse of a group as, as, as we have in the country. No. Nope. Right. Um, you know, test scores measure some, some things academic, certainly, but really what they measure is your ability to do it quickly. And there's no study I'm aware of that gives any advantage to speed processing 
in over the course of the semester. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, if you take a philosophy class, you're not given a test with four answers and you have to choose, quote unquote, the correct one. You're giving an, given an essay and you have, or a topic, and you have three weeks to write a paper, to research, to draft, to think about it, to bring in other sources. That's really what education is. It's not choosing one answer. Sometimes it's not even, sometimes the problem is figuring out what the question is. And standardized testing is just a different type of, of talent or skill. And all things equal, you'd prefer to have it. But it really doesn't say much about where you'll end up in life. I used to run the master's uh, degree in music technology that we have here at SUU. And, and they asked me early on, you know, do you want to have the GRE be a requirement <laughs> for that? And I said no, because I think it... It, it only predicts ethnicity and, and, as you said, socioeconomic status. And in, and in the case of the GRE, I think gender. Um, it's a good predictor yeah, of those exactly. three things. But but has nothing to do with grit, has nothing to do with musical talent, has nothing, to, you know, any of the things that I'm really actually looking for here. That, that would right. none, none of that would be predicted by a GRE exam. And I think I, I agree with you. A lot, of, a lot of our undergraduate students face that same discrimination, if that's the right word, uh, based on the fact yeah, that well, they're not good speed test takers. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as much as test optional for undergraduate admissions has become a thing and really taken off in the past 10 years, there's a, a Grexit, they call it, GRE exit movement also. And a lot of really high name institutions are eliminating um, uh, GREs for admission into graduate programs. Um, they really say if, if you've gotten A's and B's in biophysics at an institution that we know, the GRE doesn't tell us very much. It's really your ability to do that level of work and your recommendations and what the faculty say about you that matters more than their number on a standardized test. So it's it's very gratifying to see that, in fact, graduate schools are also coming around to the same sort of approach about the, the value of these tests. Well, and they seem to be one of the barriers that makes it more difficult to get in. And I, exactly. And I, right. I, you know, I want to go to graduate school, maybe, but, oh, I have to study for this test. And when can I schedule that? Oh, it's not till then. And how much does the test cost? Yep. Um, yep. Oh, I'm, you know, I, I want to sign up today. I don't, in three or four months, I might have a different plan. Yeah, my uh, my daughter was admitted early without a GRE into her PA program at St. Louis University, and she had certainly the option of applying to other institutions and looking around and seeing if there was a better fit for her, and she said, Dad, I don't have to take the GRE. I don't want to go anywhere that I have to take that. <laughs> and, you know, she was admitted. She was a bright, very bright student. She was one of three kids admitted at the end of the sophomore year. Um, into the graduate program. Wow. So she could have gone a lot of places, but um, just the idea of having to study and prep and get ready for the GRE um, was enough to make her say, I'm not doing it. Don't you think that students, um, I, I, I don't want to limit this to students. I think this is true for everybody. That, but don't you think that we're being more, we're becoming more annoyed by processes that we don't necessarily think are important see the value for yeah oh sure i mean if uh, i you know 
if we create, yep. okay, every employee at the university has got to take a Title IX exam. Uh, we, a, a huge number of them just say, I already got it. I already figured it out. I'm not going to take that stupid thing, the Title yep. IX test. And, and so we have to kind of yeah. push and prod to get everybody to do it. Right. But there just seems to be a growing resistance to doing anything that's standardized that that we think that is we don't we shouldn't have to do. It's beneath us or something. Yeah. Well, it, what people don't realize is that the SAT, for instance, was a thing of of colleges and universities in the Northeast and New England until about the early to mid '60s. And then Berkeley said, well, we think we're as good as Harvard, so we should require this test. And, um, you know, up until then, it was simply graduation from a high school in California was the requirement for admission to Berkeley. You had to be a great student, of course, but um, there were no standardized tests required at all. Um, And as the saying goes, when when California gets a cold and the rest of the country sneezes, uh, pretty soon everybody was requiring the test, not because... They thought it added anything of value, but because they wanted to look like the institutions that did require the standardized test. And, um, you know, the rest, as they say, is history, I guess. Well, this is and In fact, yeah, in fact, the, you know, the lawsuit and the possibility that standardized testing may go away for admission to the UC system will have the reverse effect. I right. think you'll see hundreds of colleges and universities dropping the requirement once you can get into UCLA or Berkeley without an SAT. John, would you do away with um, SATs or ACTs or any of those tests for undergraduate students? You know, I'm not I'm not opposed to them. And if some colleges find value in them, I think they should be, I think a university should be free to require whatever it thinks is appropriate. Um, I'm just opposed to the blind allegiance that people have to them and um, the extent to which people support the use of the SAT without understanding much about psychometrics or much about testing or much about measurement. And unfortunately, most importantly, very much about what the tests actually predict. So uh, if if you know all that and you still want to use tests, um, more power to you. Go right ahead. I just don't think it's necessary. It seems like um, at least for hundreds of universities in the country, primarily um, public universities, the main purpose for these tests are to um, award scholarships, not necessarily admission. Right, and, and that's a self-perpetuating mechanism, too, because you're essentially awarding scholarships to the students with the highest income. Yeah, it's an interesting dilemma. What would you do instead? You've been in this business forever. What would you do? Oh, um, you know, I I. People ask me that all the time, and I said, I don't know what the answer, what the solution is, um, until you start thinking about, so so let's imagine we didn't have tests, right? There was no such thing as a standardized test, and a private company says, we're going to create a standardized test for you, and it will increase your predictive capability by about two, it'll explain two percentage, two percent more of the variance in freshman level grades, nothing else. And by the way, it's going to take away 15% of instruction time while students prep for these tests. It's going to be used by school districts and journalists and politicians in completely inappropriate ways to think about state funding and other sorts of stuff. Um, How many colleges do you think would take that bet and say, yeah, I think we want to require that (laughs) test? I think not too many. Um, And so I would say 
I think we could easily live in a world without standardized tests and, and just make it the high school record and how well a student has done in those rigorous college prep classes. After, after 36 years of working in the recruiting business, enrollment management business, um, do you think that students, let's say a university said we're not going to require the ACT or SAT at all. Um, yeah. How many students would say, oh, then I wonder if you're a real university? Well, that happens. Um, you know, when I was at DePaul, we decided to eliminate the requirement for standardized tests for 2011 and in 2011 for the fall of 2012. And uh, <clears throat> there were a lot of people that made that exact claim. In fact, someone at the Chicago Sun-Times wrote a headline that said, DePaul dumbs down by eliminating tests. You know, that was the headline, which kicked off a lot of interesting discussions on campus. Um, but, um, you know, I think now that the University of Chicago has done it, and if Berkeley and UCLA go ahead, I think it's a whole new ballgame. We didn't, we, we were unaware about the Chicago thing. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. University of Chicago is uh, the highest profile institution in the country. Two and one tests, they did it uh, two years ago. Hmm. And their applications went up, surprisingly. <laughs> Just kidding. That, it's not surprising. That's a, that's a, that's a, you were back near uh, the University of Chicago. That's a university that I've admired for a number of years. DePaul yeah, is a, DePaul a, is a very place. good school, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I had uh, 17 tremendous years there. I wouldn't trade it for the world. If you were king for a day, here's my last question for you. If you were king for a day, what is it that you would do to change anything in higher education in America? What's the one thing? And it might be something that's big, or it might be something that's actually more internal to schools. What, what would you? Well, I would say um, for the lowest income students, make it free. For the middle income students, make it much more uh, affordable. And for the highest income students, make it accessible. Increase accessibility. Access. Yeah. It's about I, access. You know, I, I, yep. I'm, I, think, I think that's the, the hill on which I die is, is um, more low-income students having access to more higher education opportunities. Thank you very much. This has been a fun conversation. Thanks. Uh, I'm flattered that you asked me. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. We've had as our guest today from his office in Oregon, John Bockenstead, who's the vice provost for enrollment management at Oregon State University. We thank John for joining us, and we thank you, our listeners, for listening to us. We'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.